teams you care about. The Patriots are now closer to the bottom of the AFC than the top. That's a fact. The stories that matter to you. Trevor Story, man, he makes the Red Sox much, much better in 2022. This is your home for New England sports. I'm just wondering what happens next for UVM, because I think there could be a lot of turnover on that roster. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV-AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. What's up, everybody? Brady Farkas Show right here on this Tuesday on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. We got kind of an in-between length show today. We're on until 6.20, and then it's Red Sox and Braves as we kick off that mini two-game series in Atlanta. We've got more notes on the Red Sox today, an interesting article in The Athletic by Ken Rosenthal, interesting audio from Lou Merloni, and we also have in the 6 o'clock hour Manhattan College lacrosse coach and former UVM star Drew Kelleher. He'll be on before uh, that big NCAA tournament game tomorrow at Virtue Field. Manhattan and UVM tomorrow in the play-in game of the NCAA tournament. Drew Kelleher, the Manhattan head coach, he's a former UVM guy. He'll be with us at about 6'10", then we give you the Red Sox lineup. So you can get in on the Napa-Morrisville, Napa-Waterbury text line, 802-585-3026. You are locally owned Napa stores in Waterbury and Morrisville. You can also get in on Facebook Live, YouTube Live, and on my Twitter account as well. Everybody, let's waste no time. Five, four, three, two, one. And here we Go. The opening thoughts in the Brady Farkas show were brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and by Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center. Locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Swanton Lumber. They're online at sticksandstuff.com. We are going to get to the Red Sox. We are going to get to Drew Kelleher. But first, we have to start with the Boston Celtics. Celtics beat the Bucks 116-108. to 108. They evened the series at 2-2, and now we head back to Boston for game five, and there are just four words. That's all it takes. I've got pages worth of info here on the Celtics game. Four words is all it takes to boil it down. The Al Horford game. That's it. That's what this game came down to. Al Horford carried the Celtics to that win. It was unbelievable to watch. Like, what we saw last night, that's the stuff of legend right there. Al Horford is 35 years old. He had 30 points last night. That's his first ever 30-point playoff game. He was 11 of 14 from the floor. He was 5 of 7 from 3. He had 16 points in the fourth quarter alone. He is the oldest Celtics player with 30 points in the playoffs since John Havlicek in 1977. What we saw last night does not happen. A largely forgotten about player the last couple of years, at 35 years old, rescuing a team from deficit, putting them on his back, and carrying them to the finish line. And not only did he do all of that, he went toe-to-toe with a multi-time MVP as well. Boston on an 8-0 run. Horford gets by Giannis and throws it down and one. Al Horford. Horford dunked on Giannis. He hit threes on people. He was everywhere. 
the Celtics unequivocally do not win that game without Al Horford. Without 35-year-old Al Horford, the Celtics are down three games to one. Instead, they're tied at two. In the wake of Robert Williams not being available, in the wake of Daniel Tice being ineffective, in the wake of Jalen Brown being in foul trouble, the Celtics win because of 35-year-old Al Horford. You cannot say enough about what he did yesterday. This is now effectively a best of three where the Celtics have two games at home. You have got to feel really good about where the Celtics are at, and you feel that way because of what Horford did. And I've got piles and piles of audio today from people talking about the game, and nearly all of it is people talking about Horford. And I really can't, off the top of my head, remember one Jalen Brown signature highlight from last night. I can't remember one Peyton Pritchard highlight. I can't remember one critical Marcus Smart highlight, but I remember several Al Horford highlights. That dunk on Giannis, multiple threes from the wings to the corner, and then there was this fall away and one jump hook. Four on four. White leaves it. Horford jump hook. He's fouled, and it goes! Al Horford with 29 and a chance for 30. Yesterday, he was an average Al. Yesterday, he was automatic Al. 11 of 14 from the field. He carried the Celtics to that victory. Let's hear a little bit about what everybody had to say about Al Horford yesterday. How about the usual best player on the Celtics? That's Jason Tatum. Obviously, Al was, you know, playing extremely well, shooting the ball well. So, you know, obviously look for him after the timeouts, but just throughout the course of that fourth quarter, uh, we were just kind of playing basketball, and you know, the ball was just finding him, and he was making the right play, knocking down shots. That's Tatum. Here's Tim Legler of ESPN. Al Horford is one of the most, he's always been one of my favorite players. I think he puts on a hard hat, goes to work every night as an undersized center in this league all those years. It takes a lot to get him to respond. Mm-hmm. Just the fact that he was looking at Giannis, nodding his head, saying, okay, you got oh, me. that's how okay. it's going to yeah. be? All right, it's that kind of party. All right, I got something for that. And he responded to that. Says a lot about the character of Al Horford. It's also amazing to think a guy that's been this good throughout his career is playing probably the best offense I've ever seen him play. And he's about to turn 36. The best part of that game last night was the little back and forth between Horford and Giannis. And part of what made it so good is it was so unexpected. Both Horford and Giannis are nice, humble guys. And while Giannis can be demonstrative at times, Horford never is demonstrative. These are two guys that I don't expect trash talk from. They aren't guys that I expect to be in your face like they were last night. And you know what? I'm here for it. I am all for the drama we saw last night. Bring it on. Do it again in Game 5. I'm not for guys being punks. I'm not for guys cheap-shotting each other, and I'm not guys just going after each other unnecessarily. But what we saw yesterday, that was two competitors. That was hard-nosed playoff basketball, schoolyard basketball. Okay, to Tim Legler's point, you've got that for me. Well, I got a little something in here for you, too. And that woke Horford up and that's what the Celtics when Giannis dunked on Horford in the first quarter or in the first half and stared at him and Horford started nodding his head like that was what Horford needed 
to get going. It was th- that was the most fired up I've ever seen Al Horford. And after the game, he spoke about that little incident with Giannis where Giannis stared at him. Yeah, I don't really know what he said to me, but the way he was looking at me and the way that he was going about it uh, really didn't sit well with me. And and at that point, I think just something switched uh, with me um, and then in the game. Yesterday was great theater. And it's Freddie Coleman of ESPN Radio who always tells us, sports is the best reality TV. And yesterday was great reality television. You had the Bucks at home you know, looking to go up 3-1 and maybe starting thinking about an Eastern Conference Finals and maybe a repeat championship. You had them get out to it. The, the Bucks were up up 10 in the third quarter. Then you had the Celtics come back from behind. You had the aging veteran in, in Horford carrying the team. You had the young pup in, in Tatum who also was great in the fourth quarter. I think he had 14 in the fourth quarter. Yesterday had so many storylines. We had this mini storyline of Giannis and Horford. Yesterday was great. I do think, by the way, when Horford dunked on Giannis and Giannis kind of got that elbow to the face, I absolutely believe that was intentional. And I'm not for that. I'm for hard-nosed competition. I'm for guys talking. I'm not for guys throwing elbows and stuff. I do think what Horford did was intentional. Now, he got a dead ball technical for it, so fine, but... On the broadcast, Stan Van Gundy was like, I don't think there's anything intentional there. Definitely, definitely was. Absolutely. Dave and Montpelier, no Marcus Mart highlights, did you say? I'm saying that what stands out to me this morning when I started planning the show and what stands out to me now is everything that Al Horford did. I know Marcus Smart scored, and Marcus Smart was in double figures, and I know there's the play of him and Giannis tangled up, and Smart's trying to help him up, but I know Smart hit some threes, and I remember Smart finishing with his left hand. I and Derek White had double figures. I know other guys played well other than Al Horford. I'm just saying when I think about the game, what stands out to me almost solely is everything Al Horford did. Everything that Al Horford did stands out to me more than anything that anyone else did. Tatum had 30 points too. Why do I feel like I remember everything Horford did and I don't remember all 30 from Tatum? They had the same number, but but Horford's felt just more impactful. It just felt different, partially because we didn't expect it. I expect that from Tatum. But when I think about the game, Jalen Brown had 18. I can't remember most of them. Horford, I can remember vividly in my mind a number of his buckets. Yeah, uh, Dave's now giving me exact Marcus Smart highlights. That's great. You remember Marcus Smart. I promise you, everybody in New England today is talking about Al Horford. They're all calling it the Al Horford game. Smart was great. I'm not saying he wasn't. I'm just saying that in the memory bank here of my head, I remember Al Horford far more than anybody else yesterday. I also have to say this real quick. It was crazy. Last night I did something I haven't done in forever and I didn't know that I could do. I didn't look at my phone for 12 consecutive hours. And the reason being was I didn't get home last night until 8 o'clock. So I had already missed a half hour of the Celtics game by the time I got home. So I didn't want to play catch up. I taped the game. I started watching it last night at about 11.15. So I didn't want to see anything that had happened. So I wasn't watching sports channels. I wasn't watching anything. Didn't check my phone. 
I watched from about 11.15 till midnight, watched the first half, woke up this morning at 7.30, watched the second half. So I didn't even see the whole game last night, but I also had no idea this morning what had happened. The great Al Horford stuff from the second half, from the fourth quarter, I didn't even see until about 8.05 this morning. I didn't know I had it in me to not check Twitter for 12 hours, to not look at the ESPN app for 12 hours. It was it was kind of liberating to not be attached to my phone. Now, I don't want to make a big habit of watching playoff games on tape. I prefer to watch it live. But just given when I got home yesterday, I, I made the decision I'm going to tape it and watch it back. It was kind of liberating to not be attached to my phone. And I didn't have a Red Sox game to follow, too. So I was able to just kind of check out for a bit and watch the game later. It was actually, again, I wouldn't do it all the time, but once in a while, it wasn't bad. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Now it's a best of three, baby. We come back to Boston for game five. I said Celtics and Celtics and six at the beginning of the series. This series very well may end up going seven, but right now you have to feel good about where you're at. You've got to win two of three, and two of those three are at home. I would sign up for that at the beginning of the series. So we'll continue to talk about the Seas as we move forward over the rest of the week. Red Sox tonight open up a series with the Braves. Saw an interesting article in The Athletic. I'm feeling mildly more optimistic today about the Red Sox. I'll tell you why. That's next on DB. Make your opinion heard by texting onto the Brady Farkas Show at 802-585-3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Red Sox baseball comes up tonight, 620 with the pregame show, 720 with the first pitch. Garrett Whitlock on the mound against the youngster Kyle Wright. We'll have the lineups for you a couple of minutes Beforehand, I want to get to a couple of interesting things on the Red Sox, some that I saw, some that I heard, some that I just think. We know the record. The Red Sox are currently 10-19. and 19. They're in last place in the AL East. Yesterday, I gave you a sliver of optimism, right? I said that in the equivalent of an NFL season, we're only through three games. So when you look at the NFL season, three out of you know 16 previously, now 17, isn't that much. 30 out of 162 isn't that much either. So there's still plenty of time, although, you know, you can't say it's early forever, but, you know, the glimmer of optimism is that if you compare it to an NFL season, we're only three games in. I read a few other things today from Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic, which could give us all a little more optimism. One, A reminder that last year, these same Braves, the Braves that we're about to see for the next two games, they did not get permanently over 500 until August 8th and then won the World Series. The Braves won the World Series and they could not get over 500 consistently until August 8th. The 2019 Nationals won the World Series. They were 19-31 and at one point. So through 50 games, the Nationals were 19-31. and 31. That's kind of where the Red Sox are tracking towards right now. They then won the World Series. So it can be done. The difference is, is that those 
NL East that the Braves and Nationals were a part of were far worse than the division the Red Sox play in. So there is an asterisk there. But it is possible to start awful and get back into it. And then with three wild cards now in each league, the Red Sox can get to a point where they can hover around the conversation. So that's kind of one piece of optimism. Just look at recent history in which teams that have been bad have ended up being really, really good. There's also this. The Red Sox are clearly victims of some bad luck. And at some point, the luck has to turn. We always say that the game will even out. So here's hoping that it does. Did you know the Red Sox are 0-6 right now in extra innings? 0-6. That can't be sustainable. We talk about the bad bullpen and all that, but if they could just get the big hit in extra innings in a couple of these games, then with the free runner at second, then their record could be much different. They're 0-6 in extra innings. That that can't last. They're, this team is not going to finish, you know, 0-30 in extra inning games. Let's just say they play 10 more extra inning games. It's got to get closer to even at some point. they got to go on a run where they win 5 of 7 in extra innings. Right? That, that 0-6 in extras, that cannot last. The offense has to help. We focus so much on the bullpen, but a lot of the problems the Red Sox have, I think, are created by their offense or by lack of offense. So that's got to get better, but... 0-6 and, and extras, that's not something that should be sustainable. And by the way, more on the offense. They lost to Dallas Keuchel on Sunday. He had an ERA of 9. The offense has to be better. But again, you're not going to go 0-6 and, and extras. Some of these metrics have to even out. More bad luck. The Red Sox expected slugging percentage. I don't want to get way in the weeds on analytics, but their expected slugging percentage is 81 points higher than their actual slugging percentage. That's the ninth largest gap in the majors. So their actual slugging percentage is X. Based on all their data of how they've hit the ball, that slugging percentage should be 81 points higher. So bottom line is this. When they hit balls hard, they get caught. At some point, that has to turn too. If you're, if you're coaching your kid and your kid hits a line drive rocket that gets caught, what do you all say to them? Well, hey, it's going to even out. At some point, you're going to hit a bloop single that's going to fall. That hasn't happened yet for the Red Sox. It needs to start happening. It has to start happening. That's the way baseball is. Baseball does have a way of evening out, and right now the, the, the scales have been tipped massively against the Red Sox. 0-6 in extras, every hard ball they hit gets caught. It's got to turn at some point. That's got to give you at least a little bit of optimism. The third thing that Rosenthal said, which gives me a little bit of optimism, is that we've seen some of this before from the Red Sox, and we've seen it get better. Here's what I mean. Kike Hernandez currently has a OPS of 536. Last April, it was only 671. It's still 100 points higher, but it's still not good. And then Kike went off. 
and was great. So he was awful in April, and then he was great. Hunter Renfro had an OPS of 485 last April, and then he was great. Hunter Renfro, for a four-month period, was maybe the best hitter in the American League last year. He finished with 30 and 100. So we have seen guys who were awful early get much, much better and get on a roll. The problem for the Red Sox is that everybody has been bad at once. That's the problem. But it is possible for guys to get better. Those are some of your reasons for optimism. If you're grasping at straws, those are the straws to grasp at. We've had bad luck. That's got to turn. 0-6 and extras. Also, every ball we hit hard gets caught. That's got to turn at some point. And then, two, we saw guys be bad last year and then be great. It's got It's got to be possible for it to happen again. And three, Braves last year were a middling baseball team, won the World Series. Nationals were 12 games under five hundred. At the end of May or whatever in 2019, win the World Series. That right there, that's your optimism pie. Drink it all in because that's where it comes from. On the kind of the flip side, there was an interesting piece of audio from former Red Sox infielder Lou Merloni who was talking about the Red Sox uh, struggles. To me, it's not necessarily... You know, as okay, Bobby Dahlbeck should never play again. Thank you. He should never play again. But it's not necessarily Dahlbeck and JBJ or Royo and whatever it is, like uh, Vasquez, even though he should be hitting 240, 250. It's the next three guys, the middle three after your top three. Kike is awful. Story is awful. Too. Verdugo is awful. Those three guys are your problem. Interesting commentary there from Lou, and he's certainly not wrong. We spend a lot of time, myself included, focusing on the bottom of the order. And that's with good reason. Dahlbeck, Vasquez, Arroyo, Bradley, they've all been horrible to below average. But the others in your lineup who we don't talk about a lot, they've been bad too. Like, Martinez, Devers, Bogarts, they've been good. The guys at the bottom we know have been terrible. The guys who have been largely ignored... Alex Verdugo, Kike Hernandez, and then Story, who's not ignored, but he's not ripped on as much as the other guys. Like, they do have to be better. I mean, you look at it, like, Verdugo's hitting 212, Story 194, Kike 176. Lou's right. Those guys, those guys are, are your problem. Because my top three in my lineup, Devers, Martinez, Bogarts, they're good. The guys at the bottom, I know not to expect a ton from them. It's those other guys that have got to carry. If if two of those three were hot at any one point, I'd have five guys in my lineup that were really good. But now, right now, they're all three bad. I've got like six automatic outs in my lineup. You can't have that. If two of them are hot, I got half my lineup that's good. Now I got one third of my lineup that's good. And just how bad... Has Trevor Story been? Like, it's been really, really bad. He's hitting 194. He's got 93 at-bats, 35 of which are strikeouts. He's 1 for 18 with 11 strikeouts since the day he had two doubles against the Angels last Wednesday. He's 1 for 18 since that. Trevor Story's been horrible. He's not living up to the expectation. 
He's not living up to the contract. He's not living up to the statistics on the back of his baseball card. He's not living up to anything. Trevor Story has been bad. I do not think it's a terrible signing. But for the first month, it has been horrible. You need him to be one of the guys that turns it around, a la Hunter Renfro last year. I saw some really interesting data on players that either signed or were traded for. Like players that signed big deals or were traded for by the Red Sox, kind of like in all of our recent memories. And how they all compare through 24 games, which, you know, the Red... So, Story's played 24 games. How does he compare to other guys through 24 games? Well, he's hitting 194. Carl Crawford was hitting 155. That's the only big-name free agent or trade guy that has been worse than Story. Everybody else was better. Edgar Renteria hit 227. Julio Lugo hit 256. Rusny Castillo hit 282 through his first 24 games. Jose Canseco hit 267. Like, all of these guys were significantly better than Story. You look at the number of strikeouts. Story's got 35 strikeouts in his first 24 games. That's the most of any player that you would consider to be a big name signing for the Red Sox. Heck, Pablo Sandoval even hit 312 through his first 24 games. Trevor Story, it's got to turn around. It's got to turn around. Maybe he won't hit 300 this year, but can he hit 250 by the end of the season? It's got to start somewhere, and maybe it starts tonight. Red Sox baseball coming up about 20 minutes from now. We'll have the pregame show for you at 620. 7:20 is the first pitch. But, yeah, it, Mild reasons for optimism. That's what I'm trying to give. I've crushed the Red Sox for two and a half weeks. I'm handing out mild optimism sandwiches today. The luck's got to turn. When your expected slugging percentage is 81 points lower than it should be, I just got to throw my hands up and say, okay, that's baseball, Susan. Let's see if it turns around beginning tonight. It is the Brady Farkas Show here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. In the 6 o'clock hour, we will have Drew Kelleher, former UVM men's lacrosse star, now the head coach at Manhattan. His team comes to town tomorrow to take on the Catamounts, so we'll talk with him. And there's something that annoys me to all hell, but yesterday was my breaking point. I'll tell you what that is. That's next on DEV. 3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Show brought to you in part by Pro Driver Training. They're online at ProDriverCDL.com. They are Vermont's premier truck driver training school. I invite you also to subscribe to our podcast on the Brady Farkas Show podcast channel on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also check us out at WDEVradio.com. Drew Kelleher is going to stop by in about 10 minutes. He's the former UVM lacrosse star, who's now the head coach at Manhattan. His team comes to town tomorrow to take on UVM in the first round of the NCAA tournament. But I I just have to tell you, yesterday it was my baseball umpire story. Today I got to tell you about something that is 
a little bit irritating to me, but yesterday it reached just an all-time low for me. And I'm sure in a roundabout way, all of you, every one of you can relate to this. Don't you hate it? Like, hate it, hate it, hate it. When someone you barely know or someone you haven't spoken to in forever hits you up and asks you for a huge favor or for help in their business, like completely out of left field. Like, you know this person shouldn't even be speaking to you, but they just reach out and ask you for something big. Let me explain a little further. I'm 32 years old. You know this. I've said that before. My brother is 26. So I know a lot of people that are now young professionals through him. I'm also of the age where I know people who have little brothers who are about that age who are also young professionals. I coached travel baseball and junior college baseball, and now those kids are young professionals. So there are younger people out there who have some level of connection to me. A number of them are now starting to reach out to me. It's happened more and more over the last couple of years, and it just keeps happening. And they all appear to do the same thing. All of these people reach out to me, and they're all some kind of financial planner. I keep getting messages from people that I barely know that want me to be their client or want me to talk with their boss about financial planning. And it all starts the same way every single time. It almost seems like a Ponzi scheme to me. I get a message, hey, hope all is well. I'm a financial planner now. I need to prove to my boss that I can bring people in. I'd love it if we could just talk so you can hear my spiel and I can help prove my worth here. I did a few of those, right? Like guys that I really knew well, I did a few of those. Guys that I really like, I did a few of those. I wanted to help out guys that I really knew. But And I wanted to make them look good. I even met a guy in South Burlington somewhere and did the dog and pony show in person for an hour. Even though I had no interest in financial planning services, I went out of my way to meet a guy in South Burlington, no, in Colchester, and talk about it. I did a phone, interview, or phone thing with one of my former players from junior college. I met a guy once at a Dunkin' Donuts in a snowstorm. So I've done the financial planning one of my former teammates back in the day hit me up for this. So I've done the dog and pony show with people that I know well and like. Yesterday was an all-time low for me. I, I'm, I'm done with these things. Listen to this. I have a high school baseball teammate, right? I, went to high, I graduated high school in 2008, so 14 years ago. I have a high school baseball teammate, a guy I played with growing up. So I certainly know him well, but we don't speak much now, if at all. So we don't really have a relationship now. His little brother, who I've hardly ever spoken to in my life, messaged me yesterday. And here's what this is. Yo, Brady, it's been too long, exclamation point. Just wanted to reach out because I'm working in Manhattan running my own financial practice, uh, financial planning practice at some firm on X Street. We specialize in holistic planning, which includes saving money on taxes, making sure you're getting the best of your work's benefit, and planning financial goals like a wedding, buying a house, or even retirement planning. I just wanted to reach out and see when you are available for a quick phone call. Would love to see if I can either be a resource to you with a free consultation or at the very least catch up. Hope all is well. I'm not doing this anymore. Even though it says free consultation, 
I'm, I'm out of the financial planning help business. From now on, when I want financial planning, I will reach out to people. Because I, apparently all I know are financial planners. Every person I've ever come in contact with under the age of 30 is now a financial planner. And they all want to reach out to me. I'm, I'm tired. I'm tired of the financial planning thing. Does this happen to anybody else? Where you just get hit up constantly by people looking for help. Like people who have you have no business speaking to. Does this happen to anybody else? I'm just curious. And I'm not trying to sound like a curmudgeon. Like, I'm down to help people. Especially people who I really have a relationship with. That's why I've done four of these things already. But I'll talk to kids on the phone. I'll be a job reference. I'll talk to kids about my business or their business. I'll answer questions about my business. I'd sp I spoke at a career day once. Like I'd be down to do all that kind of stuff. I'm for helping people professionally. What I'm not for is little brothers of guys that I played with 14 years ago who I've hardly ever spoken to hitting me up randomly and telling me it's been too long. We never spoke in the first place. I'm not going to be your financial planning lapdog so that you can look good to your boss. I'm, I'm out of the financial planning uh, consultation business. I'm out of the, the Brady Farkas help pipeline to financial planners of America is done so. So, yo, Brady, it's been too long. Yeah, like forever. Your brother and I played with each other 15 years ago. We've barely spoken since then. You and I have almost never spoken. So, there you go. Let me know, 802-585-3026, if you too ever get random requests from people looking for professional help. Again, I don't mind helping people. But when I barely know you, your first message to me shouldn't be, hey, we, we specialize in holistic uh, financial planning purposes. I, I stopped reading after that point. I'm like, I'm not doing this again. So one thing we are doing again is the NCAA tournament, men's lacrosse. UVM, Catamounts, back in the tournament for the second straight year. They win the America East Championship over the weekend. They're going to host a play-in game, a first-round game, against Manhattan College tomorrow night at Virtue Field. That's going to be a 6 o'clock start. On the sideline for Manhattan is going to be their head coach, Drew Kelleher. He is a former UVM star who gets to come back to town now and coach against his alma mater, and he's with us. On the phone line now, quickly, Drew, thanks for being with us. You're the head coach of the Jaspers. Congratulations on the tournament berth, and welcome in. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, excited to get back up to Burlington. Now, you coached, you've coached in Manhattan now. This is your seventh year. You'd coached at Boston University previously. Have you been back to UVM since you since you played here? Uh, so I have been back up to campus a couple times. Um, I When I was an assistant at Boston University, I believe it was 23. 13, might have been 2014, we played up there. Um, and then a couple of falls ago, we actually uh, scrimmaged Harvard and UVM, but we actually played uh, at South Burlington High School that day. So I've been around a couple times, but uh, it feels like it's been a while since I've been up there. I know it's going to be very much in the moment for you and very much about your team and wanting to win, but will you allow yourself at any point to to look at Virtue Field and, and remember any of the, uh, the good old times? <laughs> I think it's hard not to. Um, you know, listen, I'm, I'm so excited for my players to be in the NCAA tournament and proud of our staff and all we've, we've been able to accomplish. But, you know, I'm kind of a nostalgic guy, so I think it'll be special to get back up there. Uh, but, you know, like you said, it's definitely about my players and 
and what they've accomplished, and, and this is their opportunity for sure. You know, pretty good run for your team through the MAC tournament to get to the NCAA tournament. You'd beat number two in Marist. You beat number one in St. Bonaventure. You guys come in with quite the tournament run in hand. <laughs> I think we're going a little under the radar. Uh, but, yeah, we, we had a good weekend, and we were, we were able to uh, avenge both of our regular season league losses, which, um, you know, felt good. And uh, the first time we're in the NCAA tournament, Excuse me, the first time the NCAA tournament in 20 years. Um, so that's a really big moment for our program. And, um, you know, just grateful for so many people's hard work to make it happen. You know, seven years for you now at the helm of Manhattan College, your first MAC title, your first NCAA tournament berth. Um, when you took the job seven years ago, this had to have been the moment you were thinking of. Yeah, it's, it certainly uh, was our goal. Um, you know, there's days where it seemed further away than than others, um, but, you know, last year we got a taste by winning the regular season in the MAC and, and unfortunately losing the finals, um, but this team, uh, they just weren't going to be denied. Uh, you know, we're, we're really lucky to have great seniors, and uh, they, they really pushed us forward, and, you know, uh, Saturday afternoon was pretty surreal, uh, kind of realizing that you accomplished one of your biggest goals, and, uh, you know, obviously a challenge to emotionally turn it back out to Wednesday up in, up in Jack Country. You know, I always rail on the play-in game when it comes to NCAA tournament basketball. It might be a little bit different in lacrosse because the field is so much shorter. But how do you feel about winning your conference championship and then being put on this kind of alternate line of the tournament field? Yeah, I mean, listen, it's kind of the way it's set up, and and we were prepared for it. Um, You know, obviously our our conference RPI was obviously not as high as some of the others, and um, you know, we were expected to, to play. I think it's a great thing to be one of only two games going on on Wednesday, and hopefully the lacrosse world dies will be on us, and we can uh, we can put on a good show. And um, obviously, we're we're still playing an unbelievable team in Vermont. I mean, what Coach Fife has done there is is remarkable, and um, you know, excited to play a great opponent. You know, take this for what it's worth. I outside of you know UVM I'm not real keen on what's happening in college lacrosse six Ivy League teams in this tournament and one ACC team this seems like a very odd tournament field in general <laughs> I you know unfortunately it's well above my pay grade to uh, to comment on that but <laughs> um, you know Manhattan is just excited to be in there and um, for me it's kind of cool I look around um, you know Vermont where I played obviously is in and Boston University where I coached is in so um you know, that's kind of my analysis. <laughs> what do you know about UVM at this point? We know that the film work has to happen quick. We know the turnaround time is quick. What do you know about the Cats right now? Yeah, I know they're, I know they're really good. Um, I know they've won nine in a row, and they're playing their best lacrosse. Um, they got a fantastic face-off guy. They've got a ton of weapons on the offensive end that can score and fill up the net. And, you know, they're, they're well-coached on the defensive end with some great pieces. So, um, you know, we have a tall task in front of us. Um, our staff is banging away on the film, though, and certainly was up late last night trying to get a, get our hands around, you know, what they're trying to do schematically. Um, but, you know, it's finals week here, so we can't overcook it. You know, our guys are going to be uh, mentally pretty engaged on, on taking care of their academic side of things. So we got to keep it simple and, and give our guys the best chance to win. You know, it's above your pay grade and mine to comment on the tournament field, but let me go back to that in a different way. Um, the proliferation of the sport 
is impressive. Like when when I think or when a non lacrosse fan thinks about college lacrosse, Syracuse, Duke, North Carolina, Maryland, those are the teams that first come to mind. Some of those teams aren't in this field. So I just think it's good for the sport. There's a lot of new blood. The sport is pushing further and further west. When you're out there on the recruiting trail and when you look around, you know, your schedule every year, how much better is the sport? How much different is the sport? I think it's I think it's an exciting time to be in the sport. Like you said, I think the you know a lot of the blue bloods you know might not be in this tournament, and there's some new new faces. You know, I think about you know Vermont going to back to back NCAA tournaments, Manhattan getting in, Boston University getting in. Um, you know, there's some there's some new faces, and I think that speaks to the growth of the game, which is which is healthy. Um, you know, obviously we'd love to see the growth continue at the Division One level. Um, but yeah, I mean, we can recruit nationally, internationally. Um, there's a lot of international flavor in this game, obviously, um, with Vermont, and, and we have a few Canadians as well. And um, you know, I think that's given everybody a chance. I think you know, we're as the talent spreads, you know, the roster spots aren't necessarily going up at all these places. So I think the talent kind of evens out. Well, my favorite question to ask everybody, I've probably asked you it before, but uh, game is Wednesday, six o'clock. You're going to get off the field eight thirty or so. You get to choose the post-game meal where are you bringing your kids to uh, well we we will be getting some country card deli at some point while we're up there <laughs> um man i might i might need to go get some wings at um uh, at rj's down there rj's some pretty good wings so um yeah we're staying out the wind jammer so uh, we'll be we'll be floating around looking for good food well, there you go. Al's French fries right down the street from the Windjammer, open late, so you can always <laughs> grab. Might not be great for before the game, but if you win afterwards, it could be a celebratory thing. So, uh, That's not a bad idea. Drew, we appreciate it. Best of luck to your Jaspers. Welcome back to Burlington and Catamount Country, Wednesday at 6. Uh, good luck to you and your team. Awesome. Thank you, Brady. Absolutely. There goes Drew Kelleher. He is the uh, Manhattan College uh, men's lacrosse coach. They're coming to Catamount Country tomorrow night. At 6 o'clock. Red Sox baseball is 90 seconds away. Let's get you Sox lineups. The Sox are 10 and 19. They're in last place in the AL East. The Braves are 14 and 16, the defending champs in the NL East. Garrett Whitlock's on the mound for the Sox, 1 and 1 with a 1-2-5 ERA. Kyle Wright's 3 and 1 with a 1-7-4 for Atlanta. Kike Hernandez leads off. He of 176 fame. Rafi Devers is at third. J.D. Martinez, the D.H. Xander Bogarts is at short. Alex Verdugo's in left. Trevor Story, he's at second. Franchi Cordero's at first. Christian Vasquez is the catcher. And Jackie Bradley Jr. bats ninth and plays right field. For the Braves, Ronald Acuna Jr., he is back, and he's already hitting 278. Matt Olson's at first. Austin Riley's at third. He's got seven home runs. Marcelo Zuna's the DH. Ozzy Albies, the electrifying second baseman, bats fifth. Travis Darno, the former Met, is the catcher. Adam Duvall's in center. Travis Demerit is in left. And former number one overall pick in the draft, Dansby Swanson. He does the honors at shortstop, and he bats ninth. We'll be back at it tomorrow. Same deal, 5.30 until 6.20. You'll hear a little bit from Tom Karen. You'll hear a little bit from Freddie Coleman as well. We'll see you tomorrow. Go download the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Go Sox.